just a few moments ago found out that my son stabbed himself with a hook that I left in the car. So you can pray for me. <clears throat> if you are uh, reading along with us in the text, you will know that um, the, the passages that we are traversing seem very much like a soap opera with death and murder and scandal, and it's, it's actually incredible. This stuff is in the Bible? <laughs> It's actually, it's actually crazy, but I would just encourage you as we um, enter into Second uh, Samuel that you would begin reading along with the passages that we're covering on a weekly basis um, and come prepared. What is, what is this about? Um, what, are we, what are we going to be uh, studying and highlighting uh, this Sunday morning or next Sunday morning as you, as you approach our time together? So a few weeks ago, I told you that First Samuel has a literary pattern and that's just nerdy for saying this is how you should approach the book and um, better understand what's happening. And I told you the liter literary pattern is that there's one character who is on a declining path away from the Lord. And then there's another character at the same time that's being raised up um, on an incline towards the Lord, right? And so as we approach this passage today, what's going to happen is, is, is Saul, this, the, one of the main characters of 1 Samuel, is going to come to an abrupt end. And then we're going to think, okay, well the story's been going this way and David's on this incline and our, our hope is going to be that, uh, or what we're going to expect David to think is, man, things are going to be good on the other side of me being free of this obstacle. And so this is the question that I want you to think about as we go through the passage today. What is your expectation after a major life obstacle is done? What's your expectation? Now we're going to look at the passage and see what's David's expectation, what actually plays out in his life, and how does he handle that? What's David's experience? And how does he handle it? And then we're going to ask ourselves, is that how I handle those things? So, last week, Edson covered a major portion of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, David is running through the wilderness, right? As 1 Samuel comes to an end, he's still traversing the wilderness, trying to get away from his enemy, Saul. And it just so happens that David and Saul end this chapter, this, this book, by going to war at the same time. So Saul is out fighting the Philistines, and David is off fighting the Amalekites. And they both have very different outcomes. David goes to war against the Amalekites because as he's away from his hometown in Ziklag, the Amalekites come and raid his town. And it says that they took every possession of every man there. Not only the goods, not only the, the sheep and the animals, but also the children and their wives. Everyone took them all. 
And David says, ah, that, that's not good. Actually, everyone's mad at David. Because Pursue them. And the Lord says, yes, go after them. He says, but Lord, are, are you going to give us victory? Are we going to get back what we've lost? And he says, everything. So David goes out, goes to war against the Amalekites and gets back 100% of what was stolen from him. 100%. At the same time, Saul is standing on Mount Gilboa and he's watching his army fight every military member of the Philistines. Every single member of their enemy has amassed at their border and is fighting Israel. And Saul, sitting on the mountain, watches as his men begin to run from the battle and are utterly slaughtered by the Philistines. And the army approaches Saul's position and the archers lay eyes on Saul and they shoot and they hit him, he's wounded. Saul looks to his armor bearer and he says, can you just go ahead and end it for me? I really don't want to be taken captive by these, these heathens, these uncircumcised people. Can you just, just take me out? I don't want to do this anymore. And his armor bearer says, no way. I'm not killing you. You're the king. It's not going to happen. So Saul takes his spear, puts it on the ground, and stabs himself through, thinking, I'll just do it myself. And then the armor bearer follows suit. They both die. Then the story transitions back to David. David is at his home celebrating victory with all of his family there and all of his men's family. And an Amalekite, a sojourner, comes, approaches the city of Ziklag and says, hey David, I have, I have some news from the battlefront. And David said, how, how did it go? Uh, well, pretty bad. I actually saw that Saul, Jonathan, his brothers, and the whole army is dead. David says, how do you know that they're dead? He says, I saw Saul mortally wounded, and yet he's still alive. And he asked me if I would kill him because the army is approaching him. And I thought, man, he's surely going to die. I'm just going to go ahead and relieve him of this burden of life. And so I, I took his life. And by the way, I brought you his crown and his bracelets as, as tribute to you that I might receive some kind of reward. This is David's response. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David tears his clothes and begins to mourn over Saul and Jonathan and his brothers. He actually goes so far as to write a funeral dirge, a song about Saul and Jonathan. He says, 
the splendor of Israel has been laid low on Mount Gilboa. He writes a song about this man who has pursued him through the, through the wilderness. And then David asked the Lord, should I, should I return to Judah, where I'm from? I've, I've been in the, in the, a sojourner in foreign lands for a while now. Should I go back? And the Lord says, yes. And David asks, where should I go? And the Lord responds, go to Hebron. And so David does. And when he gets there, uh, the men of Judah actually anoint him king over Judah. It's finally happened, right? Saul's dead, and now I'm king. It's one problem. Saul's commander, Abner, still lives. And so does Saul's son, Ishbosheth. 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 There we go. And Saul's uh, commander, Abner, anoints his son as king over all of Israel. So now we've gone from Saul as the king over all of God's people to David as king over Judah and Ishbosheth, king over Israel. And then civil war breaks out between David's men and Saul's house. And then there's this very gruesome battle where 12 men from each side actually fight with one another. They grab their hair and then they take their sword and at the same time kill each other. So 12 men all die simultaneously. And there's three commanders there from David's army, Joab, Abishai, and Ashael, and also Abner from Saul's house. And they go to war, and the battle is fierce. David's men start to take ground, and Abner flees. But Joab, Abishai, and Ashael say, it's not enough. We had to take this guy out, right? And so Ashael is actually known for his quickness, and he pursues Abner. And Abner's like, please, just go away. Please don't make me kill you. I don't know that I can look at your brothers in the face if I have to kill you. And Ashiel refuses, just continues to fight and pursue Abner. And so Abner, being this military man, takes the butt of his staff as he's running away and pushes it through Ashiel, kills him on the spot, lays over dead. Joab and Abishai come and they find their brother dead and they still pursue Abner. Not gonna let this go. So finally, Abner calls out to Joab. He says, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So war continues. And David's house continues to grow stronger, and Saul's house under Ishbosheth continues to grow weak. But what happens under Saul's house is that Abner, as one single person, gets stronger and stronger, and Ishbosheth becomes worried that he's going to take over, and so he starts to accuse Abner. Hey, why are you sleeping with my father's concubine? 
Shouldn't you not be doing that in order to belittle this man? Abner says, am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And so this man that has stood beside Saul for years as his commander says, okay, it's time to give the kingdom into David's hand. And so Abner sends a messenger to David. Hey, let's strike up a deal. And Abner, uh, sorry, David actually invites Abner into Judah. Says, come, let's share a meal together. Let's feast together and talk about what this is going to look like. And Abner comes and he sits down and he said, this is the deal. I'd like to be, uh, have a similar position in your army as I do under Saul's. And David says, hey, you remember that, uh, that wife, Michael, that I bought for the, those men's skins? You asked for 100, I gave you 200. I'd like my wife back. He says, sure, let's make that deal. And so Abner leaves, and the text says that Abner leaves David's house in peace. There's no harm there between him and Abner. But it just so happens that Joab and Abishai are on their way back from war. And they see Abner leaving David's house. And Joab rushes into David's David's room and says, what have you done? You let this man leave in peace? We can't let that happen. He's actually only come here to find out your military strategies and to take you out. And so Joab sends his brother out to get Abner, brings him back into the city, stabs him in the stomach and kills him. And David's response is, I and my kingdom are innocent of the blood of Abner. And news goes back to Ishbosheth. Abner's dead, and he's terrified. And all of the people in Israel are also terrified. And so two men from his army take the chance. Hey, let's, let's go actually pay vengeance on Ishbosheth, on Saul's house, in order to get a reward from David. And so they go into Ishbosheth's house as he's taking a nap and stab him in the stomach. And they cut off his head. And they take it to David thinking, we've done something amazing. They come into David's house and they say, we took out Ishbosheth for you. What are you gonna give us? David responds, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men 
have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And so David mourns all of this loss. He actually mourns Abner. And he commands all of Israel to, to mourn this mighty man. And he writes another song about Abner and how mighty he was. And then the men of Israel anoint him king over Israel. And now at this point, the fruition of David's life and his anointing way back when have come true. He's actually come to this place where he's king. And as king, his first act is to take back the city of Jerusalem. So he goes and he takes it out. And he names it the city of David. And he continues to build it, builds this empire. And it's at this point in the text where God, he says, I now understand that God has put me as king over Israel. And no other point does he say that. Seeing these things come true. So David takes up residence and he becomes stronger and stronger. And then his old enemy hears about his residence in Jerusalem, the Philistines. And you guess their response. Let's go get him. Let's go kill the king. We just killed the other one. Surely we can get this one. David hears about their, their idea. And he asks the Lord, should I, should I go fight the Philistines? Yes, go fight the Philistines. Am I going to have victory over the Philistines? The Lord says, yes, you'll be victorious. And so he goes out to this place called Baal Perazim, and David defeats the Philistines there. And he says of the Lord, you did it. David exclaimed, he burst through my enemies like a raging flood. And so he named the place Baal Perazim. It's not exactly clear in the scriptures how long David was pursued through the wilderness. But my best guess is that it's years that he's in the wilderness, but not more than a decade's worth of time. The whole time that he's in the wilderness, he's already been anointed to be king. And yet this whole time he is afraid not only that is he not going to become king, but that he is about to lose his life. I'm not sure what's going to happen first. Either I'm, am I going to die before this happens? And so what's telling is after this major obstacle is removed from his life, what is David's interaction toward leadership? What stands out about David's actions towards those who have power and control? I 
First thing that I notice in the text is that David continues to respect leadership. Not only is he in the middle of the wilderness, unwilling to kill Saul, but he's also refusing to allow other people to participate in mutiny. So much so that he's not going to associate with those people, right? Two different times, two men come with news about the death of a leader in Israel, and his response is the same each time. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity? When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and though he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which he was reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own bed, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? I remember in high school, uh, I had a really good friend uh, all growing up, and then in high school, I, I, we made a couple other friends. Uh, and those couple other friends weren't the greatest influence in my life. Uh, they might not say that, but I have a clear story about that. Uh, my, my, I grew up on, uh, on what used to be farmland, and we had uh, pasture right in front of our house and a big lawn that my dad really loved. He loved it so much that he would send me out to pick weeds out of, the, out of the lawn. And I can't tell you how much I hated doing that because it didn't seem like it made any difference at all, right? But my, my, my new friend uh, was, we were just at the age of getting, um, getting our driver's license. And he comes over with his mom's station wagon. And we were all outside playing basketball. And I don't know who had the idea but for this story's sake, we'll just say it wasn't mine. We decided to get on the back of his station wagon and ride around doing donuts in my dad's lawn. And it was fun until he started going down the road and I thought I was gonna die. And then it wasn't so much fun. And then my dad came home and it was more not fun. Right? I mean, my dad was absolutely livid. And now that I have children and a yard of my own, I now understand his perspective in a way that I did not then, right? But as I remember that, what I think about is, I don't think that I would have made the decision to do donuts in my front yard if it weren't for this guy with the station wagon. You know? Now, maybe that's not true, but it certainly didn't help right? Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king and do not associate with the rebellious. There's a, a cultural connection here between what's happening in David's life and what is currently happening in our culture right now. 
Because what the, the culture tells you, what the world around you tells you is that you should figure out whatever makes you happiest and then pursue that at all costs, right? And I tell you that that is opposed to what the scriptures tell you? That's not, that's not what David's example is here. Surely David wants to follow through with his anointing to be king. And yet he refuses to make any advancements on his own without the Lord doing it himself to the degree that when someone else besides him makes the advancement, I actually know that I, I don't want any part of what you have done. And he takes their life. How much more should we be like David? To pursue the things that God has called us to through the power of God instead of us reaching out our hand. Instead of us determining what the good things are and then going after them, even though there's a crowd that wants to tell us, hey, if it makes you happy, go do it. Second thing is that David rejoices over leadership. And he, he honors them. He, he writes songs about these men. He proclaims that Saul is the splendor of Israel. This, this man that has tried to take his life throughout the wilderness has been someone that he has become someone that he publicly praises. He leads Judah in mourning this man, calls them to honor him. And then when Ishbosheth dies, and when Abner dies, he leads his country in honoring men that opposed him. So he's not just taking part in their He's not just refusing to take part in their downfall. He's not just refusing to speak poorly of them. He's actually speaking highly of them. Look at these mighty men and how they have fallen. It's taken me a long time to uh, grasp the concept of what it means to honor your father and mother. Because when I, when I hear that from the Ten Commandments, when I hear that, what I think I should do is whatever my parents want me to do is how I should honor them, right? And that is particularly difficult when what my parents desperately want is for me to be no more than 10 miles away from them in South Carolina, right? Somehow I've ended up 5,000 miles away from them right? I don't know how to reconcile that. How do I honor you and yet pursue the call that God has given us? Honoring your father and mother isn't just about doing whatever they say. It's also not about whatever the outcome is of your relationship with them, right? The outcome of David and Saul is that 
you're trying to kill me. And yet David somehow still follows through with honoring leadership. Honoring someone is paying tribute to the weight that they've been given by God. It's actually what honor means in the Hebrew is weight. They have a particular glory. And so what God means when he's talking about honoring your father and mother is this person has been given a specific task at a specific time to do something. And regardless of how much they follow through on that, we honor that God has given them that task. That's essentially why he refuses to kill Saul. It's absolutely astonishing that he praises them publicly to me after all of that. And number three, David forgives. He reconciles with leadership particularly the leadership that is in opposition to him as best as possible that he can. After Saul's death, there is no reconciling with, with him. But when Abner comes to town, this man that has stood beside Saul, his first response to, will you make a covenant with me? David says, good, Let's do it. Come eat with me. Let's talk about it. Let's repair our relationship with each other and see how we can move forward together as God's people. David sends this man of war who's pursued him out from his house with peace. What's missing from that interaction? What's missing is bitterness. I would give David every right to hold bitterness against this man. And yet, he hasn't done it. He's welcomed him into, into his home, given him something to eat, and sent him away. After college, I started a career in insurance. I did uh, sales for State Farm for a while, and I was utterly terrible at that. And yet somehow that landed me a job as a claims adjuster. I remember the first interview, I told my boss, who was a State Farm agent, hey, I'm gonna take a long lunch today. I didn't tell him I was going to interview somewhere else. So I had this interview with Steve Johnson, and we, he had actually been a former cop, and I have a degree in um, criminal justice, so he really loved that. And I ended up getting the job, and I worked for Steve for three years. And our relationship was pretty rocky. I didn't know the Lord at that point, but when I was directly under this man, I, I tried to respect him as best I could, you know? Uh, <clears throat> sometime later, after I had a new manager, uh, we traveled out to Texas to work a hurricane. And it just so happened that he was my boss again in this new setting, just for a short period of time. And there were a few things about Steve that rubbed me the wrong way, you know? <clears throat> He's 
very particular about a certain set of things. And when you're in a storm disaster zone, you're trying to pay people as quick as possible, you know? I'm just trying to throw checks out left and right. Please go away, right? I want to help you, but I also have a ton of other people that I need to go help. So here's a bunch of money. <clears throat> and there came a point during that three-week stint where I gave it to Steve, <laughs> uh, gave him the business. And it did not go well for either of us. <laughs> uh, he, uh, me doing that allowed Steve to speak to me like I had never heard him speak. And it just escalated from there, right? Didn't go very well. Maybe like six, seven years later, I sent Steve a letter. Somehow he had gotten uh, incorporated into our missionary newsletter that said we were going to Alaska to be, to be missionaries. And he called me and said, what is going on? You're doing what? I have to hear the story of this. And so we, he invited me to lunch and I told him this story about how the Lord had gotten my heart. And he looked at me as though I was an alien. <laughs> Who, what did you do with Matt? You're not the same person. And then he supported us as we traversed this call of God. Only God can do that, right? It's to take these people who are, who are enemies, who are opposed to each other, and then bring them back together. So here's the question. What is allowing David to act in this manner, in this situation? Which, by the way, is loving other people, right? David's actions towards leadership throughout his life, but particularly after this major obstacle has been removed, reveal to us his heart for God. What's more important to David more than anything else is his relationship with his father. David hears that Joab killed Abner and the first words out of his mouth are, I and my kingdom are innocent of the blood. I don't, I don't want to do anything that would create this barrier between me and him. Can it not be so that my sin is creating this distance between me and him? At every point after Saul, and even before Saul's death, David is asking God for direction. He's walking hand in hand with him. Should I go defeat the Amalekites? Yes. Are you going to give me victory? Yes. Should I go to Judah? Yes. Where should I go? Hebron. Should I go fight the Philistines? Yes. Go fight the Philistines. For David, God is enthroned on his heart. 
and victory is assured before he even gets to the place of fighting. That's the point. That's, that's the, the position of David's heart. I have victory in the Lord because I have him. It does not matter if I become king, if I see every obstacle laid low in front of me. I know Jesus. I know that God is for me. John 15, 5. I am the vine. This is Jesus speaking. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Is the object of our lives to be with him, to be restored, to be reconciled to him. And yet, how often is it that we say to ourselves, God, would you please just lay this obstacle low? And if this obstacle is removed from my life, my life will be better. That's not David's example. David asked the Lord, should I go fight the Philistines? Yes. He goes out to Baal-perazim, and he said, <clears throat> this is David, David says, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood, like a raging water. It's just like the crossing at the Red Sea all over again. Do you know what Baal Prezim is also translated as? The master of breakthrough. The master of breakthrough. God, the Father, Jesus, His Son, and the Holy Spirit are masters of breakthrough. And so I need to only do one thing with my life is to know that one, to know him. And what happens is as David life progresses through the wilderness and coming into this place of kingship, it's after he's done all these things. Now I know the Lord as breakthrough. He says it in 2 Samuel 4, 9. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, God is the one. He's the one that I know. He's the one that I need. And he's the one that I have, regardless of the obstacle that lays in front of me. So here's the challenge to you. Stop focusing on the obstacle. Stop focusing on the thing that you think, if it changes, my life will be better. If I could just get on the other side of having a two-year-old, I, I could have a life again. I, that's actually your own doing, my own doing, right? 
Stop focusing on the obstacle and set your eyes on Christ. Be in his presence. Know him regardless of the challenge you face. And you will carry the same peace that David does. You will carry it and you will also give it to other people. That's who we're supposed to be. As you respond this morning to worship with this team, to praise him publicly, receive prayer in the back, take communion, be with him in this moment. If you so wish, you can also give. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Ask that you would move in our hearts and minds in this moment know and love you more, to give you praise, to lift your name high, to give you glory, even in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our shortcoming. God, would we see this world as you see it? Would we see each other as you see it, your creation? Would you help us to know that you are the master of breakthrough and regardless of what stands in front of us, you have made a way for us to stand with you through your son's blood shed on the cross. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Uh, he's here. He's made a way for you to know him. And it is your, it should be your greatest ambition to know and have him. We don't officially end until 1230. So if you want to stick around, help us tear down. Love to spend time with you. If you are uh, planning to get baptized today, please come see us in front of the stage. About 10, 15 minutes. If you are having uh, food insecurities, trouble finding food, uh, we would love to help you with that. Just find someone on the team, tell them that you are in need and we have something for you. May God bless you and keep you. See you next week.